Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm James Esposito, and this is New Books in History. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just finished talking to Nathan Pearl Rosenthal about his new book, Citizen Sailors, Becoming American in the Age of Revolution. This book was released by Harvard University Press in 2015. Pearl Rosenthal's book shows how American sailors led the creation of national citizenship in the late 18th and early 19th century. The British and French operated an informal and imprecise system of common sense nationality of shared visual, linguistic, and cultural cues to identify friend from foe during the wars of revolution from 1776 to the end of the Napoleonic War. Rosenthal shows how the threat of forced conscription and false imprisonment spurred American seamen to demand a reliable means of identification from the newly formed federal government. Sailors, both black and white, could receive the same recognition as citizens decades before the American Civil War. I hope you have a chance to pick up citizen sailors, especially if you're interested in the American Revolution or the history of the Atlantic world. It was a pleasure to talk to Nathan, and I hope you join the show. Today we will be speaking with Nathan Pearl Rosenthal about his new book, Citizen Sailors, Becoming American in the Age of Revolution. Hi, Nathan. Welcome to the show. Hi, James. Thanks for having me on. Uh, before we get with the text, um, I want to ask you a few questions. Uh, first, uh, as is customary on new books, uh, what made you decide to become a historian? Well, it was a bit of, um, of a surprise to me, actually. I, um, when I was in high school, was very convinced I was going to be a, a scientist, a biologist specifically, I actually worked in a bacterial genetics lab. Uh, and I realized at some point, and I really loved science, I loved the kind of mix of higher order thinking about how the world works and trying to understand, you know, basic processes, and then also the kind of very nuts and boltsy way that you had to try to create experiments to test your, your ideas, right, to test your hypotheses. Uh, and I realized at some point, when I started college and went to work in a lab there, that I really actually hated the process <laughs> of lab science. Uh, and I said to a friend of mine who has since become a PhD, uh, an MD PhD, and is quite mm-hmm. uh, uh, doing very well for himself in, as, a, as a research scientist, I said, you know, I love science, but I don't like the boring parts of it. And he looked at me blankly and said, what boring parts? Uh, and I said, you know, like pipetting and adjusting the knobs on your machine. And, and he looked at me again, totally in comprehension and said, but I love that. I love adjusting the knobs on my machine. And I sort of realized at that point that probably research science was not for me. Um, but I found in history, which is something that I'd always enjoyed, uh, some of the, the same kinds of processes uh, and some of the same kinds of uh, intellectual activities. And I actually enjoyed what I had referred to as the boring parts uh, of history much more. 
So we think about how people act in the past, how people behave, what might be driving their behavior. Uh, but then, of course, we have to go, you know, we have sort of this imaginative process. But then we actually have to go uh, to archives or to texts and try to find some evidence to back up these, these wacky ideas that we've had. Of course, there are some people who do it in the other direction. Uh, but I think all of us, to some extent, work imaginatively. Uh, in any case, you work imaginatively and you work with, with, with sources. Um, and I just found that I loved sitting with dead people's correspondence um, or bureaucratic forms uh, or whatever. Uh, I really enjoyed the process of archival work, and I still felt like I had that, that kind of higher-order imaginative thinking. Um, and so I really liked that, that combination. And so in a way, for me, uh, history is sort of like a more interesting version uh, or more engaging version of uh, uh, of, of natural science. Um, don't tell my friend poor biologist. But, uh. <laughs> I, I won't. I'll, I'll I, keep your secret I, safe. But I, I podcast likes <laughs> to keep a secret safe, right? Yeah, this is on on the internet, so <laughs> nobody ever finds those. Nobody ever finds good things on the internet. Sure. Um, yeah. So in particular. Uh, it, what drew you to the 18th century and uh, the Atlantic world, um, uh, going from that background in sort of hard sciences? Yeah. Um, uh, one thing in, in your book that is very interesting is that there is this idea that um, a sort of theme of classification, trying to classify nationality and citizenship in a world where, the, especially in the Atlantic, where these things are very fluid and convenient and people will use them and lean on them uh, for their own benefit, but maybe aren't empirical. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really smart thing to notice. Um, I do think there are ways in which, look, historians have different habits of mind, I think. Um, there are historians who are much more drawn to kind of uh, uh, to moments of violence or to explaining uh, uh, or displaying, explaining, understanding um, violence and, for instance, its psychological effects. Um, I think I, as an historian, am much more drawn to questions about how processes work. Um, that is to say, not the breakdown of processes, but how the processes function. Um, and I, I, I hasten to add that I don't think that the world is a perfect place, that it's a beautiful machine that works beautiful, works perfectly. But I'm interested, I guess, in the ways in which people manage to kind of work things out and get their worlds to work. Um, I think, for instance, um, of, uh, you know, there's, there's work on, for instance, the Soviet, uh, like everyday life in, in Stalinist Russia, um, wonderful book called Everyday Stalinism, mm-hmm. which I read in graduate school and just loved. The sort of research question is, well, so people are living in a totalitarian state. So how on a day to day basis do they actually live? I mean, how do they manage to survive in this experience? And, you know, you could also ask these questions about concentration camps and people have or lots of other kinds of contexts. Obviously, the ones mm-hmm. I'm dealing with are not as extreme, but I'm very interested in the ways in which people find creative ways to adapt to the situations that they that they find themselves in. Um, and the ways in which those systems kind of function. And so that's, I think, part of the, the classificatory story that you're seeing there is I'm really interested in how you have sort of a problem. You need to figure out who's who on the water. And there are all sorts of different ways of trying to do that. And I'm just fascinated by watching people kind of try to work that out for themselves. Um, 
on the ground. Uh, but the, the, the question of how I got to the 18th century, which is how you started this, um, you, can, I, can I just go back to that for a second? Oh, yeah, please do. Yeah. Please do. Uh, so I, I like to tell people, semi-tug-in-cheek, because it's sort of true that I, I stopped being interested when they stopped wearing the triangular hat. Uh, okay. And, <laughs> you know, but I didn't, I, I didn't choose my field based on the, the, the shape of the hats that they were wearing. Um, I think I really chose it, um, as I think a lot of us probably did, through a kind of almost coincidental influence of some teachers at particular moments. Um, so one of the, uh, you know, I, I studied with a couple of very um, influential 19th century historians. And uh, just became very fascinated by the history of slavery in the 19th century. Um, but then as I, as I sort of got deeper into that field, I thought, well, this is a fascinating world, but it seems to be a sort of a static world. And I think now we don't think that anymore. But nonetheless, mm-hmm. I felt like there was a, a world of a pre-existing world um, of 19th century slavery. And I became interested in finding out where that might have come from. Um, and so that's sort of what drew me to the 18th century. And from there, uh, I got very interested in the revolutionary era in particular. And, and the rest is, I was about to say the rest is history, but. You know. <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of how I ended up in the 18th century. Okay. Um, yeah, I, that, that's interesting. Cause I, I, I did sort of notice in your book that it is trying to, uh, at certain moments, you do sort of uh, project even even maybe uh, subconsciously to the 19th century as being somewhat more orderly or stable. And it seems like, uh, as you indicated, the 18th century and uh, even the beginning of the 18th century is being sort of this almost this prehistory of um, uh, international relations almost where, uh, you know, you're on the water and you're you have a flag of convenience. Uh, and, well, that's okay, but, you know, the British might or the French might uh, board your ship. And then <laughs> things get very interesting. Um, if we can kind of start uh, with your, um, uh, at the beginning of the book, when you're actually talking about Nathaniel Fanning yeah. and his experience as a privateer, you have this very interesting uh, setting where uh, Fanning and his crew arrive uh, in England, um, sitting there on the ship and they're getting stoned. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm like, I'm starting to read the text and I'm like, what's going to happen here? What, what, what is, what's going on? You just, you just, uh, kind of sucked me in there. Right. And, um, if you could talk about Fanning and, and why he was in that place and, and, yeah. uh, you know, what happened there? Yeah. So I start, I started with the story of Nathaniel Fanning. It's ironically, it was actually one of the very first texts that I, um, looked at when I was first becoming interested in the maritime world. This was more than 10 years ago. Uh, and part of the reason that I looked at it so early is that it's actually, there are published editions of it. Um, this is not an oh, unknown wow. okay. source. Um, and I was actually in the library and, uh, you know, sort of shelf reading a, a, an increasingly extinct art, you know, just sort of looking along the shelf for what was next to the things I'd already found and came upon Fanning's story and, um, and I just, I felt immediately that there was something very remarkable about it. And it, in a way, the, the process of coming to writing the book was partly a process of sort of sorting out what it was that was fascinating about, uh, about Fanning's story. Um, 
he's from this New England seafaring family. Um, and there are a lot of these families that sort of live on the coast. Uh, and there are these big, you know, New England families tended to be quite large in the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, and very often they would all sort of be in the same profession. So you have uh, Fanning House, I don't know, dozen, more than a dozen, I think, cousins and uncles and aunts uh, spread around on both sides of Long Island Sound in Connecticut and New York. So he comes from a seafaring family. Um, he's about, you know, in his late teens, early 20s, around the time of the Revolutionary War. Um, and like everyone else in his family, most of them uh, end up going to sea, fighting on one side or the other. Of the, most of them are on the, the Patriot side, the American side. Um, but there are some who are actually on the, on the British side, uh, including his, one of his uncles, who's actually quite a well-known uh, New York Tory. Um, so uh, Fanning uh, ends up shipping out with John Paul Jones, the sort of great American naval hero, um, and goes into to sort of cruises in European waters with him. And John Paul Jones basically teaches Fanning uh, the way that you can use um, the fact of being American to, um, to be a really good privateer. So privateers are basically licensed pirates. Um, Congress, in this case, um, issues commissions to individual um, sailors or to merchants that allow them to go out and capture British ships. Um, and John Paul Jones sort of uh, is one of many people who disguises himself um, as a British ship. And so that, what that allows you to do is um, he'll come up right next to um, a British merchantman and then reveal himself to be an American, at which point they have no, op- you know, no possibility of escape. Um, he'll capture them. He sends them back to a friendly port and then the ship is sold and the proceeds basically go to the, the captain and the crew of the capturing vessel with some cut going to the, the owners uh, and usually to Congress as well. So, um, so Fanning becomes a privateer himself, um, and he's sort of sailing around actually as a French privateer, privateersman. He's got a French commission. I mean, he's capturing English vessels left and right, pretending to be an Englishman, uh, and he's captured by, uh, by the British and interrogated. And what I, what I saw in this moment, and really this was a moment that I, in the first reading of Fanning's story, hadn't even noticed, um, but it ultimately became the sort of opening moment of the book, um, He's interrogated by these British naval officers uh, in Dover, in the port of Dover. And what I found fascinating is they're trying to figure out how do we tell whether this guy is British or American? Because mm-hmm. he yeah. sounds, Britons and Americans sound, they look, they dress, right, exactly the same. Um, and so in this particular moment, what they do is they first try to decipher his accent. Um, and so there's this sort of funny moment where one of them says, oh, you're clearly English. And the other one says, you're clearly Irish. So obviously mm-hmm. accent doesn't do you much good. Um, and then he says, no, 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 I'm an American. Uh, and one of the, the, um, the interrogators then starts asking him all these questions about um, the port of New London, which is the, the nearest large port to where he grew up, um, clearly trying to use his local knowledge of that port to test Nathaniel Fanning to see if he really is who he claims to be. Um, and he manages to satisfy them and ultimately um, escapes the fate of the two men who were captured with him, uh, who are determined to be Irish. They get hung. He um, is released uh, or exchanged for, for British prisoners. So this was really the, the, this is the opening moment of the book because I think it shows you three really important things. It shows you, number one, that your nationality matters tremendously at sea. Um, it's a matter of life or death for Fanning and his men. Um, and so you really need to have a good account 
of, of who you are, um, juridically, right? Not really your identity, not who you feel you are, but who mm-hmm. you belong to, what state you belong to. Number two, it's incredibly hard to tell, um, who's who, uh, as this, this moment illustrates. And that's a problem all across the 18th century, but really more broadly. I mean, I think this is generally a problem of the maritime world. Uh, it's even a problem to this day. And it's just because for the simple reason that, um, right, the, the nature of maritime labor takes people out of their local context, right? Um, mm-hmm. you're on a ship, you show up in port. Where did you come from? Well, it's, I guess in, in, you know, contemporary container ships, you sometimes have GPSs that could let you really know. But, you know, most of the time, it's very hard to tell with any certainty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third point is that the American Revolution, I think, um, is the beginning of this moment of flux, right? Because what surprised me in this little scene was that they didn't have, I mean, in other words, if those first two things are true, it really matters and you need to have a good explanation of who you are, then it's really surprising to find that people don't have a reliable way of distinguishing nationality. And that got me thinking about, um, you know, what is it about the American Revolution that creates that problem and how ultimately mm-hmm. do people try to resolve it? And that's what sets the book in motion is this effort to kind of resolve um, or, or resolve American nationality to, to figure out a way to fix it um, on Mariners. Yeah, uh, it, it seems like uh, the central contention of your book is that that sort of contrary to this I guess in the historiography of citizenship, uh, the notion that the nation state was uh, predominantly a process of kind of usurping the authority of local or regional identity into the nation state. Um, there's sort of a, a, a number of historians that sort of established that governments kind of penetrated society and embraced their subjects. You know, uh, you have sort of empires of the 18th century, but then in the 19th century, you have really nation states. Mm-hmm. And, and really what your book shows that, at least in the American case, uh, American seamen really demanded citizenship. They demanded uh, uh, for the American state as it was it's kind of evolving to give them some sort of uh, easily identifiable status, uh, which is just a fascinating idea. I, I, I n- would never have thought about that um, in the context of, of the sort of late 18th century, early 19th century world. Yeah. So I, and I think that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, I, the only the only maybe difference I would have from what you, you know, the disagreement I would have with what you just said is um, that, of course, empires remain dominant until, you know, in, in the sort of sure. world system until this first world war, at least, if not, if not till later. Um, but they become more, um, right, more like modern states in the sense of being able to exert control at distance, uh, being able to see into their, their territories over the course of the 19th century. Um, but I, you know, I think that's, those are two of the, two of the, the ways that the book tries to, to, to make kind of broader claims. I mean, I think there are interventions within American history uh, of the, the early Republic, but there, the part of some of the broader claims, I think, uh, are that this process, which I think we really see as a 19th century and even a later 19th century process of the kind of states, the modern states capture of identification um, um, or of, of nationality um, happens, at least for some people, uh, much earlier. Um, and then, as, as you say, exactly, I think part of the part of what I'm trying to, to show is that in this case, which I think is not inconsequential, um, it's pretty clear that the state is not 
a predator attacking, um, you know, unwilling citizens or subjects, uh, subjects uh, or citizens in this case, American citizens are pretty clearly active participants. Indeed, indeed, in some respects, they seem to be the most active participants in the formation of this system of national um, identity and national identity documents. Um, now, you know, I don't think this negates the point which plenty of historians have made. Um, I don't think this negates the fact that in the 19th century, there are a lot of states that come to have a kind of coercive relationship to their, to their um, subjects or citizens. But I think, I guess what I would hope that some people take away from the book is that, that that's not inevitable, right? That there are, um, that there are possibilities for the formation of national identity from the ground up. Um, and that it might be possible, I suspect that that's a process that's more, that actually exists elsewhere, right? I don't think that this context, that the, the story that I tell here is an isolated one. Um, and I think it'd be interesting to know more about that, right? To understand better the ways in which the modern state actually comes out of demands for help in some cases from below um, in the 19th century. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that would change a little bit how we how we approach the modern state um, because, you know, the state is a big thing in our lives um, and it's often a bad thing. Um, but I think we should be conscious of the ways in which um, perhaps it, it comes out of, um, of other, of other pasts, right? That isn't that, that just because that's the way it is today doesn't mean that's where it, that's where it began in some cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, in, in your book, uh, you talk about this sort of idea um, going back uh, hundreds of years uh, of the, the idea of sort of natural allegiance, that if you're born in England or born in Ireland, in, in the British case, uh, you're always going to be a British subject under the crown. And it's, it's uh, unalterable and it's linguistic. So it, it's inherited because you speak this, this sort of common language that... Uh, you'll always be part of the crowd. And it gets very, um, very messy in the middle of the book where, you know, there's this, this sort of armed insurgency in America for her actively trying to say, Hey, we're not, we're not British at all. And <laughs> we're not Irish. And if, if, if they don't believe you, if it, it's, it's interesting in your book that, uh, sort of the common sense, uh, ideas of, of nationality, the way you uh, sort of talk, the way that you um, act uh, is, is a certain currency in a way, because it, because if you're encountering uh, a friendly uh, force, then that's fine. You're good. You're good to go and you can yeah. go on your way. <laughs> yeah. But if, if you're encountering an enemy or a, a privateer, for instance, you're going to be in serious trouble. <laughs> yeah. And it's very vague. Like, uh, I, I was sort of thinking about how we uh, deal with maybe like driver's licenses yeah. or, uh, or these sorts of kind of uh, documents that sort of have an authority. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting how like this, this idea uh, is embedded, especially in the British case, this idea of sort of natural allegiance. Yeah. So I think, I, I mean, I think that's a really important point to bring forth, um, right, to, to kind of pull out. Uh, because in a way, part of, what um, I think part of what's 
going on in this period, and this is well known, right? Part of what's going on in this period is the development in the United States, but then also in revolutionary France, uh, the sort of the breaking of what had been a kind of consensus in the European world over uh, what uh, the, the scholarship, the, sorry, the citizenship scholar, uh, um, uh, what's his first name, Kettner, um, described as, um, well, actually, this is the term generally used, indefeasible allegiance, right? The idea that allegiance cannot be changed. So all Europeans, basically most Europeans believe that that's the case in the first part um, of the period that I cover in the book and going back probably um, into the Middle Ages. Um, and this period, this is one of the kind of revolutionary moves in the last quarter of the 18th century, is a lot of, in a lot of places, that notion is shattered. And so Kettner uh, talks about in the United States the creation of what's, what he calls volitional allegiance, the idea that you can, which is what we have now, um, or what the United States has had since then, which is to say you can choose to become a citizen. Um, you can also give up your citizenship, right? Citizenship is this kind of um, status that you can acquire or lose. Um, and uh, I think this is, this is like a big, this is one of the great transitions in, uh, in the nature of political belonging uh, in the past four or 500 years, um, such that, you know, now it's the case in most places that they have at least somewhat a notion of volitional citizenship, right? That you can enter and leave um, uh, the political community, right? That you're not stuck with the political community that you're born into. And that's why, of course, it's no longer the case that things like language and ethnicity um, match up perfectly or can be reliably matched up with your, uh, with your nationality. Um, so that's, you know, that's been known. We've known about this, this transition. Um, and what I'm, trying to add in the book is an understanding a little bit of how that works on the ground, right? Cause it's, it, I think we have a very clear sense of how those, that transition happens theoretically, but how does that work in practice, right? What does it look like to move from a system where you can pretty reliably guess someone's nationality based on what their native language is um, to a system where you have to kind of look deeper, right? Um, or, or ask more questions or have another uh, classificatory system to go back to your, your, you know, your earlier, your earlier point. Um, and I think, I don't think sailors are unique in they're They're not at all unique. In fact, in transitioning to this volitional, this world of volitional citizenship, it's just there among the first to enter into that and for whom it becomes a big problem. Um, and so you sort of see there very clearly, perhaps more clearly than you would in other contexts, um, how the new the new ideological concept creates all sorts of problems on the ground and all sorts of challenges, um, and therefore elicits the creation of new kinds of um, uh, you know taxonomic tools, basically to try to figure out to figure out who's who. Yeah, um, speaking of of taxonomy, this is like uh, I think a pretty good way to sort of talk about. Uh, the British and the press gang and the idea that that throughout the 18th century and in, into the beginning of the 19th century, Britain is continually at war. Uh, as we've seen other uh, 18th century British historians have talked about sort of the, the, the state able to tax and able to raise money and borrow money and then able to fight these, these massive wars, yeah. uh, seven years war, American revolution mm-hmm. and uh, the war of 1812, the Nope, Napoleonic wars. Indeed. Um, it's interesting that 
the press gang. So, so if the British caught you uh, on an American ship, you would be press ganged. However, the reason why that was so was partially because you know naval naval service in the Royal Navy was very harsh and it didn't pay so well, not as much as being a privateer. But also something interesting, um, and speaking of, sort of the rise of the state and state surveillance, you talk about how French bureaucracy was sort of superior in the sense that they the state could have have all these records of uh, sailors that were in the Navy, and if they needed to call them up, mm-hmm. they, they knew where to find them. Yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> For the British, they don't know where to find them. They're on the sea, they're in America, they're you know in the Caribbean, or you know who knows where they are. And it's interesting. There's something kind of very, very, I don't know, Foucauldian about that sort of idea that even in the 18th century, the French were sort of <laughs> interested in state surveillance just to make sure that their navy works. Yeah. And the British are just like, ah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, to be honest, that's, it's, it's a bit of a mystery. I don't think anybody has that I know of has an adequate explanation for why the British government is never able to put together anything remotely like the system of naval enrollment, which is actually very widespread on the continent. It's not just the French, the Spanish have it as well. Um, okay. And there are a couple of other places that have some similar systems. Um, so basically what we're talking about is how, um, how you man a Navy in the 18th century. And you have to understand that in the 18th century, the Navy is not kept in the field in peacetime. So the British Navy, for instance, um, on the eve of the Napoleonic, uh, sorry, the French Revolutionary Wars has, I can't remember what the number is exactly, but maybe a dozen ships outfitted. Um, Mm. And in the space of about a year and a half, two years, as the wars begin, um, they increase the numbers by, I think, fivefold. So it goes up to something like 70 or 80 ships um, in the field at any given time. Um, And the reason for this is, this is well understood by naval historians, it's really expensive to keep a navy in the field. I mean, the problem is, it's as large as an army. uh, Mm -hmm. And of course, you're on the water. So you don't have, you have to basically put everything that they need to live on the ship um, beforehand. And the ship itself needs to be kept functioning. These these huge ships, enormously complicated machines. Um, So this is a very expensive, expensive and also extremely complex bureaucratic operation. I mean, there are entire dissertations and books about um, things like naval provisioning in the 18th century, um, because they, they have these enormous bureaucracies designed to basically vacuum up huge quantities of stores uh, naval stores, and then make sure that they get onto the ships in decent shape so that they can be, you know, keep everybody alive and functioning and keep the ship going. Um, so what this means in practice is that when a, 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 a naval power goes to war in the 18th century, this is true in the 17th as well, 17th and 18th, um, when they decide to go to war, they suddenly have this gigantic need for men. Um, they have a need for all, all of the different things they have. They need ships, they need stuff, Right, uh, 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 material, real war material, food, mm-hmm. but they also need men and a lot of men. Um, so a number that I like to mention uh, is when, just to give you a sense of the scale of these fleets, in 1778, um, the French government signed a treaty of alliance with the United States, and they sent a fleet, a naval fleet, to the United States to get involved in the war to uh, counter the British fleet there. When that fleet arrives in the city of Boston, there are as many men in the French fleet as in the city of Boston. 
Uh, oh wow, that's a, that's an amazing fact. Yeah, it's there are there are as many in this single fleet. It's about six thousand men, and there are about six thousand men in the city of Boston. Um, so these are just enormous undertakings um, to to get that many men together and onto ships. Um, so the French system actually really would seem to make the most sense. Uh, but the British, for whatever reason, aren't able to, to put that together. And so what they do is they have um, what's called the impress service. Uh, and there are other, actually, that's not the only body that, 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 that recruits men. But basically they call up from, uh, they first call up the men who are um, serving in, uh, who are members of various um, maritime sort of corporations around the British Isles. Um, and then they start um, stopping every ship uh, on its way into the harbor, um, the, the Thames. Um, so it's very important. They don't stop the, sh- the merchant ships on their way out of the Thames. They stop them mm-hmm. on the way back in so that the goods make it, you know, they, the trade basically goes out and then comes back in. And then they take all the men and the ships can't leave again. Um, mm-hmm. And if you're a British subject found aboard one of these ships, you have to come and serve um, in the British Navy. That's um, under British law, you owe a duty of service as a British mariner. You owe a duty, duty of service to the to the king or queen, and you have to serve in the navy in wartime. Um, now, what this does is it creates a system where if you are a foreign subject or if you can convincingly pretend to be a foreign subject, you don't have the duty of service. And so that's where this problem comes from, uh, really in the 1790s especially, um, where Americans, again, look, sound, dress just like Britons, but because they have this invisible status of being Americans and not British, they don't have to go into the British Navy. Um, and so that creates all sorts of, it's sort of, this creates this really rather massive conflict, uh, 20-year conflict, really, which is one of the proximate causes of the War of 1812. James Madison's uh, war message in 1812, the very first thing he says is, um, uh, Britain is uh, impressing true American citizens into the British Navy. Um, this cannot, we cannot stand for this. Um, it creates this very long um, uh, crisis of impressment. Um, and I should just, if I could just add one more thing before I... Oh, sure. Uh, uh, I know I'm, I'm... But impressment is just so fascinating. Uh, yeah, it is. It's one of the most interesting parts of the book, actually. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I'm actually trying to do, and I just want to make that clear, um, is that we have a number of historians have argued that the problem with impressment is that the British government um, is doesn't believe that American sailors have the right to are, are immune from impressment. Um, so the claim had been a number of people have made this claim that the British government basically doesn't will will take anybody whom it can get right. Mm-hmm. And what I found is that's not true at all. The British government is actually perfectly not only at the level of the, the ministry, right, the sort of secretary of state, but also even down at the level of individual naval captains who are actually doing the, you know, the, the taking of men off of merchant vessels. They're willing to accept that an American citizen doesn't have to serve in the British Navy. It's just that they can't tell who's who. Um, and if they can't tell who's who, they're going to give themselves the benefit of the doubt. Uh, sure. So absolutely. Distasteful, maybe. Um, but the point is, and this comes back again to your, your original point, which I think is such a good one. The problem is a problem of knowledge, not a problem of ideology, right? It's not that the British mm-hmm. government yeah. doesn't believe that American citizens have rights that are different from British subjects. It's that they can't figure out which person should have which rights. Um, 
so that's that's part of the that's part of the the claim, and that's why I think we end up um, trying to develop uh, uh, systems for marking uh, nationality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it, it's interesting, and I think this might be a good time to talk about prize law in in the Crown Courts because one of the the actors in this is. Um, the courts in the New World, uh, in uh, in Barbados, I believe there was a, a crowd court, and several other places where, uh, you know, uh, British privateers or or whoever would, they would, you know, capture American cargo, American sailors, and that's where they would, you know, make decisions of, well, well you know, is this illicit cargo? Are these people, you know, uh, are these valid targets mm-hmm. for our uh, privateering efforts, or are we? you know, do, do we have to send them on their way? That's right. Um, so privateering, as I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, is, is the system of uh, basically regulated piracy, right? It's essentially, it's exactly the same thing as piracy, except you do it. That is to say, you go out in an armed ship and you capture merchant vessels or, you know, other kinds of, or even enemy warships, and you bring them home and you sell them and you keep the profits. Um, the only difference, there are two differences. One is if you're a privateer, as opposed to a pirate, you have a commission from a, uh, a sovereign, right? So a sovereign has said, you can do this. Um, now, obviously, this is not done anymore in warfare, but this is a commonplace thing in 17th, 18th, and into the 19th century. Um, the second thing that makes you a, a privateer, not a pirate, and this is coming, coming back to what you were saying about the, the admiralty tribunals, uh, is that you only capture enemy ships, right? Because uh, yes, yes. if you're capturing friendly ships, that's not right. That's, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Um, and that's a, that's a violation either of your own sovereign's stuff, more or less, or if you're capturing neutral vessels, then it's a violation of, uh, of neutrality. So a huge amount of effort is devoted. Um, so the process is ship goes out, privateering ship goes out, captures an enemy vessel or a suspected enemy vessel and brings it back to a friendly port. And there, there's a court that then basically sits and tries to judge whether um, the ship that was captured is what's called a valid prize or not. And the questions that you have to ask are things like, as you were saying, um, is it enemy owned? But also, uh, is the captain an enemy subject, which in most, um, most versions of prize law also makes the ship an enemy, a valid target, as you said. Um, is there a, an enemy supercargo, a, a merchant, or a merchant's agent aboard ship, or is more than a quarter or a third of the crew enemy subjects, in which case also it becomes a valid target. So it's the job of this tribunal to, to, to judge, you know, to judge these questions, to adjudicate these questions. And what I was fascinated by was, was realizing that these admiralty tribunals work as these, and, and there are, there are vice admiralty tribunals and admiralty courts everywhere in the European world. Um, it's actually quite interesting. They're, they're not only in one empire or another, they actually are in all empires. They're in all of the colonies, uh, by and large. And they're actually, they, their procedures are actually quite similar across different empires. So some, there's somewhere, there's a very interesting book to be written about actually, um, admiralty courts, um, and the relationships among them and, and, and the ways in which they actually are a kind of global phenomenon. Um, in the 17th and 18th century, especially in the 18th century. Um, but anyway, um, but this, this system um, functions basically as this huge machine for classifying people and things according to nationality. And again, I think this is remarkable um, 
for the, for the moment, right? Um, we don't usually think of 17th and 18th century states as spending a lot of time classifying people or things according to nationality. We know they classify them according to status. We know they classify them according to race. Um, they often classify them, especially in the 17th century, according to religion. But the idea that you're, the, the sovereign to which you belong is what matters and that the state spends a lot of time, and they do, these tribunals can spend you know, sometimes months working out these cases, spends a lot of time figuring out, or an apparatus of the state spends a lot of time figuring out to what sovereign you belong, um, I thought was, was a, a kind of remarkable um, a kind of remarkable thing that, that, that made me think that, again, this story of um, the rise of nationality um, and of unitary nationality in a certain way, right, of belonging to a sovereign, um, at least in the maritime world, uh, it happens a lot earlier than, than, than we might have thought. Yeah, it, it was interesting with the admiral, admiralty courts as well, is that uh, if, if uh, the uh, ship is, you know, seized and it, it and it, you know, it's legally seized. The court gets a cut as well, <laughs> you know. So, so they have the strong, you know, um, uh, uh, strong, you know, sort of enticement to, you know, take take what's there, you know. Also, you know, it, it makes everyone look good. But there's it, there's interesting moments where uh, sometimes the the supercargo, the trader who's the uh, who owns the vessel or who's who's you know chartering the vessel is, you know, in good graces with the with the crown and says, oh, well, we have to give this back. Or uh, it, alternatively, if they're in bad graces with the crown, even though it, it looks like, you know, everything is fine, they'll seize it. <laughs> so it, it is they have a lot of latitude because, you know, in some cases, you know, they're really, you know, uh, months away from, you know, any sort of uh, higher national authority. They have so much latitude. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I tend to, so I think that's true. And look, I think, um, I think the, the sort of the account that you've just given is, is right. In other words, and, and lots of people have documented this, right? That the Admiralty courts are not professional in the way that we would think of a court as professional today, right? They don't, um, especially the local Admiralty tribunals, you know, as you say, they often, they're in the pocket of some local interest. Um, if they're, you know, there's some big local merchant who happens to own the privateer that captured this ship. You know, a local admiralty judge may find a way to, to make it a valid prize, even if it involves a lot of squinting at the, you know, at the evidence. Um, mm-hmm. So that's definitely true. To me, though, I, I guess I one of the things that I try to try to show is that that's less that that in a way is not surprising. The early modern world. You know, there are very few state institutions that aren't um, more or less operating, you know, on the fly, uh, that aren't somewhat, you know, somewhat influenced by local power structures. Um, In fact, they're usually very influenced by local power structures. So what I find remarkable is that the Admiralty Tribunals actually a lot of the time seem to be pretty pretty much more they're much more bound by the evidence than i expect most of them are much more bound by the evidence than i would have expected them to be uh, that mm-hmm. is to say they they let go a lot more ships than than you might expect if they were just sort of doing the bidding of of local um of local jurists so that's you know i don't think and it's a matter of degree i think it's really a matter of degree you know um are they more or less um you know 
influenced by by um, by by sort of local power? Is there, is there procedural um, practice uh, outweighed by local power structures? And I, I tend to think that admiralty tribunals more than some others are a little bit more um, perhaps procedurally rigorous than other than other kinds of courts. And I think that's partly because they follow a um, a set of rules that are quite standardized um, across across individual empires and even across empires. Uh, but uh, yeah, but that's it's really that's a judgment call for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, one of the the sort of most uh, compelling parts of your book is is uh, getting back to, to the American yeah. case. Now, uh, you talk about uh, prisoners and prisoner survival in England and uh, um, how. Uh, loyalty to America and sort of identifying marks like tattoos or, uh, you know, uh, celebrations of like the 4th of July and these types of these types of um, displays uh, were a valuable uh, sort of identification for trust and cooperation for survival under confinement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, you're, you're bringing up one of the very few parts of the book where this is the the, what you're you're talking about, I think, is the the part of the book where I talk about um, British pr- American prisoners of war during the American Revolution held in British mm-hmm. yes. prison ships, and um, it's one of the few parts of the book where I talk about uh, identity as opposed to identification. I think it's it's probably worth just saying a word about that because um, in in a sense. This is really a book, as I think you you know, it's really a book about identification and sovereignty and allegiance, um, mm-hmm. not a book about identity in the sense of feelings, sort of national feelings. Um, because I think actually we know a lot about how individuals come to have identification um, with the state, right? How they come to feel themselves to be Americans or Britons or French. Um, in this period, but I think we know a lot less about how they ultimately identify themselves. And so, in that moment, I, I part of the reason that I talk about that in in uh, uh, in the, the British prisoner of war uh, camps or ships, even. Uh, and I should just let me just say parenthetically, these prisoner of war camps are um, are brutal um, in many cases. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the most famous of them are these prison ships that are basically prison hulks. So they're, they're sort of old ships that are no longer seaworthy, that are just anchored in uh, rivers. And um, uh, Americans are just packed, American prisoners of war are just packed into, mostly naval, are just packed into the, the holds of these ships. Conditions are terrible. The death rates are, are kind of astonishing. Um, and so, uh, you know, h- how do you survive in these in these situations? And I think... Uh, we know that one of the one of the ways to do that is is through cooperation, and and so what I was interested in there is okay. So in the midst of the Revolutionary War, this seemed like a good moment to, to find out how not how people felt themselves to be American, um, but how they actually how sailors themselves right perform this process of deciding who who they think is an American, um, and one of the ways they do that is through per- these performances, as you're saying, like as a great vignette from one of the, the prison uh, camps in England uh, where on the 4th of July, they all stand up uh, and start singing, yes, the, yes. Uh, you know, singing patriotic American patriotic songs. And, you know, I thought this was a beautiful illustration of the ways in which you, ha- and, and they, there were several people who refused to stand up and sing. 
Uh, and mm-hmm. so, you know, they were very clearly marking themselves out as not part of the group. Uh, but, uh, you know, what's interesting about that is to see uh, in this moment of the Revolutionary War how American sailors, just like if you go back to Fanning's story, think about Fanning's story, right? You have these British officials who are trying to figure out how are we going to tell whether Nathaniel Fanning is an American or a Briton, the American sailors are having the same problem. That's what I think is so, is so beautiful about this, is it's, mm-hmm. it's yeah, everybody's exactly. got the problem, right? And so their solution, mm-hmm. they're not interrogating everyone one by one and asking them, you know, what's the shape of the port of New London? Their approach is to say, look, you know, you got to stand up and sing some patriotic songs. You got to damn the King of England. And if you do that, then we're going to believe that you're an American. Um, if not, forget about it. Um, and so I think in a way, these moments, which could be interpreted as moments of, and are in a sense, right, expressions of identity, right, of feeling oneself to be an American, also come to function as instruments of identification, right, yeah, of, exactly. of, a, of a statement of allegiance. Um, and so that's, that's sort of how I, uh, how I came to be looking at those moments, um, these moments of identification sort of from below. Um, and you mentioned tattoos, too, so I hope we'll get to talk about, talk about the tattoos of yeah, yeah. They, they, let's talk about the tattoos. I, I, uh, um, I was, I was really interested in the subject, and and you know, in in, in your book, you talk about it. So, sort of uh, uh, occasionally, you'll talk about the identifying marks, and, and maybe if you can talk a little bit about how how and why um, sailors would uh, you know put tattoos on themselves to sort of identify themselves as American, and where this uh, naval tattoo. Phenomena kind of start. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, the history of, the t- of tattooing is actually fascinating, and it's a little bit, um, it's a little unclear exactly where it comes from. Uh, there seems to be, there actually seem to be a couple of different tattooing traditions that meet at some point in the 18th century. Uh, mm-hmm. So okay. there seems to be a, a somewhat ancient, perhaps even ancient, maybe even medieval tradition, uh, sort of European tradition of kind of limited tattooing. But in the 18th century, this kind of this meets up with um, what appears to be sailors experience of um, Polynesian tattooing, which is much more extensive. Okay. Um, and so new techniques and a new kind of enthusiasm for it develops, uh, or at least that seems to be the case in the in the, the sort of later 18th century. So in a way, this is the kind of, uh, I don't know, something like 40 percent of the population under the age of 35 today, I think, in the U.S. has tattoos. Um, and uh, the 18th century is when it all gets started. Uh, that's when people really yeah. start, uh, larger numbers of people, it's still mostly sailors, start tattooing themselves. Um, and people have now done, done studies, there's statistical studies, and um, it's pretty clear that the most common kinds of tattoos are actually one's own initials, um, or perhaps the initials of loved ones. And, uh, you know, one scholar speculated, it's interesting to speculate why this would be the case. Why would you tattoo your own initials on your body? So one scholar speculated that maybe um, these were sort of an early form of the dog tag. Uh, right? Yes. You so would identify yourself by your initials. I, I, I'm not super persuaded by that because uh, it's not clear. To, it, it seems unlikely to me that a lot of people would um, be drowning or be killed in action in a way that would make them unrecognizable. Um, such that you would need to be identified by, you know, an, an initial on your on your arm. Um, but it's possible. Uh, that's possible. Um, it may also be that that's simply, in other words, it may not have a functional purpose, right? It may simply be that that's kind of the thing you do, right? That that's the early the early practice is you tattoo your own your own name on your body. 
Um, I think people still do that. So, um, but one of the things that, that happens over the course of the, um, the revolutionary period is that you see more and more people tattooing not just um, what one scholar has called things of the sea, so like mermaids and anchors and, and the like, right? But tattooing actually patriotic symbols. Um, so, for instance, um, and these tend to be patriotic symbols that are um, universal, right? So... Um, the eagle, right, doesn't belong to one party or another, um, or a liberty cap, um, which is a little bit more perhaps partisan, uh, or potentially even um, an American flag. Um, so, uh, and the purpose of this, I think, um, again, there's a, a bit of a question if you're an historian faced with this evidence, because the tattoos themselves don't tell you much uh, beyond what they look like. Uh, and sailors rarely describe what they mean by tattooing themselves in this period. Um, mm -hmm. But again, you can see them as a form of identi identity, but also as a form of identification, right? They function both as a, a way of expressing one's feeling of belonging, but they also, in a very practical way, if you're on board a merchant ship, uh, an American merchant ship, and you're stopped by a British uh, warship, and they say, well, you know, the captain of the warship says, you look like you're a British, you know, a Briton. Your accent sounds British. Uh, you don't have anything to prove that you're an American. Well, if you can then, you know, pull your shirt back and show a big, you know, a big eagle tattooed on your chest, um, you know, uh, or, or an American flag or something like that, maybe that convinces someone that, you know, that you've sort of staked a claim on your body uh, to American nationality. Again, I don't think this is incredibly effective, but if you're out in the ocean, uh, you know, or on the waterfront, every little bit helps. Um, and you see, I mean, part of the reason that I think that these are a process of identification is you actually see spikes in the numbers of these tattoos appearing um, at moments, especially when British impressment uh, is particularly fierce. The pressure of British impressment is particularly fierce. So it looks like from the evidence that there is a kind of flight to, ta to patriotic tattoos at moments when more Americans are being sucked up by the British Navy. Um, but one of the, one of the, the my favorite tattoo moments, um, I don't know if you remember, but in the, is in the last mm -hmm. chapter, um, uh, I tell the story of uh, two fellows, uh, John and Charles Lewis, uh, who are actually members of George Washington's family. They're uh, mm -hmm. nephews. Uh, you know, grand nephews of, of Washington. And um, they're identified, uh, it's Charles Lewis, I think, uh, who's identified uh, and identifies himself as having um, tattooed on his chest the initials GW and MW for George Washington and Martha Washington. Um, uh, yeah. And I think that's a, just a really nice example of the ways in which something like a tattoo can function as both identity and identification because at once it right, it expresses his connection to his family. Um, but he chooses George Washington and Martha Washington, right? The people who are most obviously associated with the American national project. I mean, he's got lots of other relatives who are much more closely related to him. He's not a close relative, you know, a, George Washington is not his father or his, you know, his uncle. He's, I think his, his great uncle once removed or something or his cousin anyway. Um, so it's both a way of staking a claim, I think, to 
you know, of expressing his connection to his family, but also a way of saying, look, I'm an American. Not only am I American, I'm actually part of the family of this, you know, this American president. Um, and, you know, you should possibly respect that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, um, just sort of getting to towards the end of the book, that there's this point where uh, sort of the currency of identification, uh, there needs to be more more identification sort of installed in the system. However, it, this is sort of before um, the Customs House gives secu- uh, certificates of identification where uh, notables and the politics of the notables and being powerful becomes very important. There's a point where uh, uh, captains seek out sort of uh, a... It's hard to explain what it would be. I guess it's sort of a... Um, documentation saying that, you know, this notable in Boston knows yeah. me or, you know, I, I'm affiliated with the government by this degree. And it, it seems like towards the end of the book, these, these notables, these uh, powerful Americans are, are just writing all the time <laughs> because everyone wants this, this sort of, um, this sort yeah. of paper. And, and uh, if you could just yeah. talk about that, cause I, I thought that yeah. was a very interesting yeah. part of the book so, as well. So, you know, in a way that the story of the book, uh, just to, to sort of give the arc of the book to the, to the point that you're talking about, um, you know, if you start from Nathaniel Fanning, um, after that, mo- that initial moment of American independence, which breaks apart, um, right, breaks apart this old system of identifying nationality based on language and things like that, there's a kind of fluid, a kind of mo- period of fluidity of about 15 years when really sailors are in the driver's seat. They have most of the power to convince people to persuade people of what nation they belong to. And, and states have a lot of trouble, I think, in this period. So through the early 1790s in um, forcing sailors, uh, American sailors or Anglophone sailors generally, and even Frank, French sailors who are able to speak a little bit of English from kind of moving among these nationalities as is convenient for them. Um, and the, 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 the sort of the arc of the book is that then after the French Revolutionary Wars begin in 1793, this fluidity becomes more and more untenable. And what you're describing is, I think, the first phase of this kind of clampdown by the British and French governments, where for the British government, they're terrified that all of their manpower is going to get frittered away, uh, that you know, Britons are going to pretend to be Americans and they're going to lose all their manpower. The French on their side are terrified that they're going to have tons of British ships coming into French ports, pretending to be American. And and from their point of view, just to make this clear, what the French government's afraid of is not just that. um, They're actually afraid of spies is one of the things they're terrified about. I mean, you have these these moments when uh, one of my my favorite, I mean, the favorite moment, it's a sort of poignant moment, um, was when I was reading the, um, the proceedings of the, Comité de, 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 de Salut Public. So this is the, the sort of revolutionary government of France in 1793-4, um, which is the most, it's sort of this committee that runs the whole country. Um, there's a famous book about this by a guy named R.R. Palmer called Twelve Who Ruled, which is the 12 members of this committee. They just run the country for about a year. Um, and this one of the members of this committee receives a report from one of the, the outports um, I forget which one it is, maybe Lorient or one of the western ports of France, saying these French prisoners have arrived. Um, 
uh, or these, these Americans have arrived and we're not sure whether they're American or whether they're British. What should we do? And he just scrolls in the margins, um, you know, just put them in prison. You know, it's, it's too dangerous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We just, we just put them in prison. And so, you know, this is just the, the, the fear of spies coming into France is, is intense. It's really intense. Um, cause they know that, you know, Britain is, is the dominant power on the ocean. Um, uh, but they're also terrified about losing all of their trade to Brit, to Britain. Uh, this may sound a little mm-hmm. paranoid, but, uh, but it's the fear that, it, that empires have in this period of, uh, of losing their trade to the, the enemy power. So both the French and the British are really, after 1793, really insistent on trying to get sailors, especially English-speaking sailors, to have a clear national identity. And in the early phases of this clampdown, um, you know, merchants, sailors, uh, captains who are Americans are sort of desperate, right? Because they don't, they have all these strategies that they've been using for 15 years um, to kind of demonstrate that they're American. You know, they kind of talk a good game, maybe, or, uh, you know, they might have some kind of paperwork that they kind of wave around uh, or whatever. And suddenly the strategies stop working. Um, and so what they do yes. is exactly what you're describing. They start going to the mayor or, uh, you know, uh, local judges or notaries. That's one of my favorite ones. And they try to mm-hmm. get more paperwork from these people to brandish basically at anybody who questions their, their nationality at sea. And, and what's amazing to me is that a lot of this paperwork is essentially is meaningless as proof, right? So a lot of it is, yeah, you could, you could <laughs> just write it up yourself. Uh, right. And my favorite form of this, uh, is all of these American sailors who go out and collect, um, affidavits of their citizenship. And what this means, mm-hmm. it sounds very, you know, I've got, a, I've got a citizenship affidavit here, but what that really means is that you go to a notary public and you testify before the notary public, you make a statement to the notary public under oath that you are an American citizen. The notary public writes it down and then he says, this is a true copy of the statement that was made to me. Right? So there's no, yeah. there's yeah. no evidence behind it, right? There's no, and Pretty quickly, British <laughs> French officials start realizing that this is, you know, this is a document without much content, right? Um, but, you know, they're desperate. They'll, they're trying sort of any strategy that they can find um, to prove themselves. And, and you're exactly right that what they're trying to do is use the kind of whatever they perceive to be the kind of sources of cultural or political or uh, social capital that they can find in their seaport towns and try to kind of uh, get themselves under the protection of those people in the hopes that that'll protect them when they're at it, when they're at at sea. Um, so, and of course the next phase of the book, which you sort of hinted at is, is that this then, you know, really isn't successful. Um, and, uh, and that's where you get these, these citizenship certificates, national citizenship certificates. Yeah. If you could talk about this sort of transition from these sort of, phony, fake, kind of semi-fraudulent, maybe, uh, affidavits to sort of a, um, a, a national ID, mm-hmm. sort of national ID card with some yeah. sort of, uh, weight yeah. upon it. Yeah. So this is, this is kind of the, the heart of the, the book in a sense, um, is there's this moment in 1796 when the federal government, um, uh, decides that it's time to step in. And I think it's instructive to see why that happens. I tell the story briefly in the book, but uh, there's a, um, a ship that belongs to 
a member of the Livingston family and uh, a wealthy New York, wealthy and very politically powerful New York mercantile landowning family, um, which is captured in the West Indies. Um, and most of the men aboard it are, um, are impressed. And the captain of the ship writes back to his, the owner of the ship, one of this, this Livingston brother, uh, and says, you know, uh, they won't give back the ship. This is, you know, uh, we lost the, all these men have been held. They're actually American citizens. Please help. And, uh, this Livingston, I mean, this is, you know, the umpteenth time that this has happened, but now it's happened to a Livingston. Uh, and so yes, yes. he writes to his brother, who happens to be a member of Congress. Uh, and within a few days, suddenly there's a congressional committee that's looking into how to protect American sailors um, at sea and to help them demonstrate their citizenship. Um, and what they create is this really, I think, very remarkable system uh, of what's called custom house protections. And basically the federal government passes an act for the protection of seamen in 1796, which creates a system of paper citizenship certificates, which are issued by federal officials in the ports, in port cities. Um, these are the collectors of customs. And uh, these guys are um, federally appointed uh, agents. And what they're supposed to do under this act is any sailor can come to them. And it's actually not even doesn't even need to be a sailor in, in theory, although it's mostly sailors who come and ask for them. Uh, sailor can come. They have to bring some kind of proof of their American citizenship. That can be a form of paper proof. So, for instance, dem- uh, evidence that you were born in the United States or were naturalized. Um, mm-hmm. Or you can actually bring witnesses. Um, that's what a lot of sailors do. You bring a couple of witnesses who will testify. And then you actually have to bring something to authenticate the proof that you're bringing. So you can then bring witnesses um, to testify to the authenticity of the paperwork, or if you already have witnesses who are testifying, you need a couple more to make sure that that's, you know, those are really genuine witnesses. Um, mm-hmm. You present all this evidence to the collector of customs, and he then gives you a citizenship certificate, um, which is produced on a printed form. Um, they're numbered. Um, the collectors actually keep careful records of who they're giving them to, what proofs have been offered, um, and exactly, you know, when they're issued. Uh, they include a physical description of the sailor. So again, you then get descriptions actually of the tattoos. Um, that's one of the ways we know about these tattoos. And, uh, and then there are all sorts of authenticating seals and signatures. Um, so these documents are basically the state of the art in 18th century identity documents. To us, they may look not very reliable, but this is about as good as an identity document, identification document gets in the 18th century. Um, and uh, there are two other things. Well, perhaps I shouldn't go on if you have, you know, if you want to step in. Oh, uh, no, no, that, no, that's fine. Yeah. Continue, yeah I mean, please. I think the two things that are, that are really remarkable about these, these documents is number one, they're issued to men of all races. Uh, and this is actually yes. a fight. Uh, when the when the act is passed, it doesn't have any language barring black sailors from uh, who are about 20 percent of the overall, uh, a little less than 20 percent of the overall seafaring population in the United States. Um, there's no language barring them from getting the certificates. And the uh, secretary of state, uh, I'm sorry, the secretary of the Treasury, uh, who's charged with infor- with putting these uh, certificates into action when he sends directions to the collectors of customs actually inserts the word free white, free white man. 
um, into the into the mm-hmm. directions. He said he basically reimposes a racial test. And what's remarkable is that the collectors of customs just ignore it. Uh, they issue certificates oh, wow. okay. to black men, and they don't do it, I think, because they're enthusiastic about African American rights. That would be rather surprising in this period for white elite men. Um, but they do it because what their bottom line is is they want to protect American commerce, and in order to do that, they have to make sure that all American sailors, including black men, have these certificates. But the upshot is mm-hmm. you have African American sailors, um, thousands of them carrying around pieces of paper that say so-and-so is a citizen of the United States, um, circa 1800, uh, which is, you know, uh, one way of looking at that is it is a direct contradiction of what Roger Tawney famously says in, in Dred Scott uh, v. Sanford, you know, 50, 55 years sure. or so later, um, where he kind of tells this history of American citizenship in which he claims that the federal the founders and the federal government never intended for black men to be citizens. Um, and it is pretty clear that that's the, I mean, we always knew his history was bad, but it was really bad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Had in their hands at the time. Um, that's one thing that's remarkable. The other thing I think that's remarkable about these certificates is that they work. Um, I mean, that's what I was really amazed by. Um, and I, uh, the way I was able to, to figure that out, um, and people had always known, we've known for a long time that lots of sailors were using these documents, that they had some level of efficacy. But what's striking is that they seem to work better than almost any other document. And I, I was able to figure this out because we have the records of the agency um, that the 1796 Act creates in London to enforce, uh, to try to, to try to um, advocate for sailors before the British Admiralty, before the British Navy. Um, and what mm-hmm. they've got is the, the records of about 10,000 appeals over the course of 20 years to, um, to the, the Navy, um, appeals for the release of sailors. And what's very clear is that as soon as these certificates become widespread, they are far more effective than any other form of proof in getting American sailors out of the British Navy. Um, what I found really striking is that there's a period during the early 19th century when claiming to have had a protection certificate, but you don't have it, it's lost or destroyed. Mm-hmm. Claiming to have had it is more effective in getting released from the British Navy than having an actual affidavit or um, certificate from another kind of official, like a consular official. Um, mm-hmm. So even the idea of one of these certificates at a certain point is more powerful, more effective at demonstrating that you're an American citizen um, than, than anything else. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so, so Nathan, what are you working on now? What, what's your new research project? So I'm going back to a much earlier project, uh, much earlier, uh, to really the project that was my dissertation. This book is actually not my dissertation. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, which is a somewhat unusual uh, uh, yes. Unusual trajectory. Um, my dissertation uh, was really a, a project that tries to look at the age of revolution uh, on a larger scale, um, comparatively and connectively uh, through the lens of culture. Um, and so the new project is going to be a book that tries to argue that we can Think about the age of revolution, the kind of transnational dimension of the age of revolution that people in the period understood to exist, right? That there were all of these um, feelings of common purpose and common um, agenda circulating around the Atlantic, that we can think about those, that sense of common purpose as grounded 
not in, as for instance, R. Palmer argued in his famous book, The Age of the Democratic Revolution, not as grounded in shared um, politics, per se, or political structures, uh, but actually is grounded mm-hmm. in shared uh, cultural practices. Um, and so one of the things that I'm trying to argue is that in, in this book, I think, is that um, in a way connected to the, the sailors book is that um, the relationship between culture and politics um, is the, the, the culture often has um, an almost. So really what the what the book is going to try to argue is that we can reconstruct, I hope, um, a new idea about uh, of what the age of revolutions was and how it held together by starting um, from culture and not from politics. All right, Nathan, it was a pleasure, and um, thank you for thank joining us. Thank you so us. much, James. Really appreciate it. Great to talk to you.